right, we'll grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Micah chapter 5. We'll cover Micah 5 today. We'll cover Micah 6 on Christmas Eve. We'll record that, so if you're not going to be here. And then uh, Hunter uh, Maynard will preach for us uh, from Micah chapter 7 on the 27th of December. And then we'll be done with Micah. And then we'll have a little break. Jesse Holmes is going to come preach for us on the 3rd. And then we'll begin our study in uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, which will take us... Uh, close to the summer after that. So just getting yourself ready for for those things coming up in the new year. But today, Micah chapter 5. So I'll begin reading there at verse 1. This is God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. This is God's word and it's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, for gathering us again uh, in the midst of um, still continued sickness and um, Unrest, I would say, in our country and even within the church, God, and we, we, we just give you thanks for these simple things um, like gathering together face to face. And so, God, we pray that you would uh, be with us now as we um, open up um, this text in Micah, God, that you would show us um, just great and glorious and wonderful things from your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, remember, uh, well, if you haven't been with us, but if, you're, if you've forgotten already, that the, the question that is posed by Micah, even in his name, is the question, who is like your God? Who is like your God? How has he demonstrated himself to you? How does he compare to the other gods of this world, Micah asks? How does he compare to uh, those things in your life that you trust in? Are they equal to him? Well, in our text today, Micah answers this question by saying, Your God is the king who saves his people. But it's not going to be a, a, a normal rescue operation. I think when we hear uh, the, 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 uh, the word rescue, we, we begin to think of uh, SEAL Team 6 kicking down the doors. Or a great army rolling into town with planes flying overhead. Or if you are in the nerdy crowd like me, Gandalf on Shadowfax standing upright in the heat of battle at just the right time. That's what we think of when we think of rescue. Or simply, and probably more to the heart, we probably think, I can rescue myself. I can change my outcome. I don't need any outside assistance. So you would probably approach the promise we just read in Micah 5 uh, a bit like a skeptic. Because he offers salvation not in a great and mighty army but in a defenseless, weak, helpless baby. And this is exactly the theme of this particular section in Micah. The small would overcome the mighty. Strength only found in this particular weakness, which accomplishes three things for us that can be found there in your worship guide if you're taking notes. Uh, that can only truly be found in this little baby that Micah tells us about. One is peace, true peace. Second is true security. And then three is true purity. So peace, security, and purity. One, peace in Christ. Verse 1 states the reality of Israel's present condition. Micah says to them, siege is laid against you. The enemy army is outside their gates. And Jerusalem has no hope of rescue in and of themselves. They have no army to muster. Uh, that, That can match this opposing army that has come up against them. And even their king, who is supposed to be this representative of strength and control, even the king is hopeless. That's why Micah says that the king has been struck on the face, which is a sign of humiliation. They are desperate. Second Chronicles chapter 32 which is part of the history books of, of the Bible. But Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 10 through 15, actually records the narrative that Micah is referring to here. And I just want to read those verses for us just to kind of give you the context of what Micah is, is talking about here. This is what it says. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. 
Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Do you not do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those na- those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my predecessors destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? How do not let now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him for no God of any nation or any kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my predecessors. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? This is the enemy king talking to God's people. And basically he is saying to them, you have no hope in your king. He's pathetic. He is not going to deliver you. Nor do you have any hope in the God that he professes to believe. Look, I have defeated every king and in turn have defeated all of the gods of those kingdoms. And your God is no different, the enemy says. And then you have the word but, starting off verse 2. And so when you see this sort of transition, you know change is coming. And typically it's either better or worse than what was just stated. So thankfully this time here, it's, it's, it's better. It's much better. And so Micah uses this transition to answer for us some questions about the peace That is to come, even in the midst of these threats from the enemy. The first question he answers is, who is the peace? Who is this peace? So Micah says, from Bethlehem Ephrathah would come the ruler in Israel. And then he goes on to explain, look, Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans of Judah. This is just a tiny, insignificant place. Now, this is probably strange to our ears. We've, we've read this you know, hundreds of times during the Advent season. We, we always come to Micah chapter 5 and read those, those words simply because they have the word Bethlehem in them. And so we think those are beautiful to read, and so we, it concentrates our minds. But there's way much more uh, that Micah is saying here when he refers to Bethlehem Ephrathah. Here he's saying that that rescue, and this is why it's strange to us, is that rescue is going to come from somewhere that we least expected. From this uh, small, uh, insignificant town, the ruler would come. The king that would save his people is coming from this tiny place. And it's not just any ruler either. This isn't just like a mayor or a senator or someone like that. This is a ruler, Micah says, who is coming from ancient days. Which literally means this is an eternal king. This is a king who has always been and always will be. And he's coming to us from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So how could someone so significant be coming from such an insignificant place. Well, to the ears of Israel, the mention of Bethlehem Ephrathah would bring hope. 
Because Bethlehem Ephrathah is where Israel's greatest king, King David, was born as well. This is where in 1 Samuel 16, uh, David, out of all of his brothers who were uh, much taller, much more handsome, much more king-like than, any, than David ever was, this is where David was anointed king. So for God's people, this meant God was anointing another king from David's line. And that was significant. Because this was a promise filled with great hope for them. King David, he brought peace. So surely this king will bring peace as well. It was the promise being fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 that says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So if you know, a stump is a tree that has been cut down. It is essentially dead. But Isaiah says a shoot will come up from that stump and a branch from his roots shall bear fruits. And that branch is King Jesus. So the second question is obvious. When will this peace come? When will this uh, ancient king come and rescue us from our enemy? Well, verse 3 is uh, parenthetical because it answers the question or the pressing question that Israel has of when will this uh, distressing situation that we find ourselves in be reversed? The enemy king is at, literally at our door. And he is throwing threats at us. We know what he's done to other nations. We know that he has wiped them out. We know that their gods that they worship did not deliver them. When will this be reversed? When will this stop? So one thing we have to realize, as Israel needed to realize as well, is that these verses are not referring to a physical kingdom as most would hope, but a spiritual kingdom. Which is important for us to to understand because when we get to the New Testament, uh, when Jesus comes on the scene, everyone is hoping that Jesus is this military king. Come in to, to lead his people to victory with his giant army and to take over and to establish a physical kingdom where he would be its king. But Jesus actually rejects that idea in John chapter 6. When the people come and say, we're going to make him the king. This is obviously what Isaiah has been talking about. This is obviously what Micah has been talking about. Jesus is here. He is going to be our king. And he is going to physically establish his kingdom. Jesus says, no, that's not how it's going to be. This is actually a reminder of Advent to God's people during this particular time. Advent is a time of waiting for someone to arrive. That's what Advent is. And so way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that is the beginning of the Advent for God's people. So if you remember... This is right after the fall. God is about to send Adam and Eve out of the garden. um, And God reminds them. He gives them this promise. He reminds them that even though they've fallen, He will send a Messiah. He is going to send a king. 
So then you have these explicit reminders throughout the Old Testament of the Messiah's rescue. All throughout the Old Testament, God is, uh, is reminding his people, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And describes them even. And we need to continue to be reminded of that as well. Which is why the season of Advent for us is, is so beautiful and needed for the church today. I mean, we, we know that Jesus has been born. We know that when we are celebrating uh, Advent during this particular time, that we are just kind of remembering and we're kind of entering back into uh, what God's people had to walk through at that first Advent. But this first Advent also reminds us that we are currently in a second Advent as God's people. As we await the second coming. Of the Messiah. So I think 2020 has shown us that the things of this world are unstable, aren't they? Not quite like having a king, an enemy king, threatening to, to kill you and your family at your at your gates, but it has been a little bit more unstable than we're used to. We can't put our hope in authority figures. We can't put our trust in our health. We don't know what's gonna happen. We can't even put our trust in those things that we think we have control over, like our schedules and our work and things like that. All of that is unstable now. So then we can read uh, John's words in Revelation 22 and be encouraged in our waiting as well, even when it's dark. Even when things don't make sense, even when things seem a little unstable or you don't feel like you're going to make it through. You can read these words where John says, and he's quoting Jesus here, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And that's speaking about the second coming of Christ. Surely, Jesus says, I am coming soon. To which John responds with the angels, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And when he comes, what will he do but shepherd his flock and be their peace, Micah says. So first, Christ accomplishes peace for us. And then the second thing he accomplishes is security. These verses 6 through 9 directly refer to the remnant of God's people who Micah has been addressing this entire time. This has been Micah's main audience. And he's writing to them about who their God is to help them trust God's character through judgment to future salvation. So he wants them to trust God's character, not just in the joys and uh, and highs of life, but he wants them to trust God's character when the enemy king is at the gates. When things seem that they are at their worst, Micah wants them to trust in who their God is. Meaning, if someone does not have a good grasp of who the God of the Bible is, It will be extremely difficult to trust him when things get hard. So, you can trust him for your present and your future by anchoring yourself in his character and who he is. I was just reading um, The Attributes of God by uh, A.W. Pink, who is uh, a theologian. I was reading this this morning, actually. 
and thought this was really good, just talking about who God is. But A.W. Pink says this in his right in the preface of his book, right on the very first page, that I think is really important for us to hear. He says something more than a theoretical knowledge of God is needed by us, meaning the church. God is only truly known in the soul as we yield ourselves to him, submit to his authority, and regulate all the details of our lives by his holy precepts and commandments. And then he goes on to quote some scriptures to back this up. Then shall we know if we follow, if we follow on in the path of obedience to know the Lord, Hosea 6.3. If any man will do his will, he shall know, John 17, 7, 17. The people that do know their God shall be strong. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. It's important for us to realize to know God in order to trust his character. Otherwise, we're going in the opposite direction where we're trusting in our character, in ourselves. I was I was uh, on a run yesterday, and one of my favorite bands came on over over my uh, AirPods, or actually my wife's AirPods, but uh, by Future Islands. And one of the one of the songs that they sang, they have this chorus that that struck that stuck out to me um, as I was running, where he says over and over again in this chorus, probably six or seven times, he says, "I asked myself for peace. I asked myself for peace." And I just thought after hearing that song over and over again, how often do we look to ourselves for peace and security? How often do you try to anchor yourself in yourself? I would say pretty often. Because we are called like Israel to look at God's character and anchor ourselves there. Not in ourselves. We don't need to ask ourselves for peace. We need to look to Jesus for our peace. Another quote. I quoted A.W. Tozer's book uh, a few weeks ago uh, called The Knowledge of the Holy. And here's another quote from here that he says uh, to, to the church. He says, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. As a church, just this church here, are we trusting in the God of the Bible on a daily basis? And if we say yes to that, is this what our neighbor witnesses us doing? When they look at us, do they see us trusting in the God of the Bible? Or are we finding our strength in ourselves? Francis Schaeffer said something similar when he said that that unbelievers have a right to look at the church and look at how they love and care for one another... And then based upon that observation, they can judge uh, about who God is based upon what they observe and how and how Christians love each other. Schaefer says they have a right to do that. Which tells us that we can never escape the self-disclosure of our witness concerning God, whether we like it or not. 
So specifically, when people see us, do they see a place that is finding their security in anything but Christ? Or do they see us every four years lose our minds over a political candidate? Do they see us pining anxiously over a difficult time in our workplace or in a difficult situation? Do they see us finding our hope in our physical health? And I can just tell you this. If, if they do, if they do see those things, see you finding your security in those things instead of the God of the Bible, you are disclosing to them that your God is too small. Too small. He can't handle these things. Because what Micah is disclosing here, even in this, just talking about this insignificant place and this little baby that is that is to come into the world, things that just seem so uh, insignificant and irrelevant and seem like they really don't have a, a whole lot of hope. What Micah is disclosing here through those things is that the God of Israel is massive. That he will take a small, insignificant nation and make it great. And they will be great only because of the person and work of Christ. This little baby. And because of Christ, they will stand out. Look at verses 8 through 9. Or 8 and 9 there. In chapter 5. Micah writes, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Their identity is secure in Christ alone. Not in their military or political prowess, not in their standing among the nations, but in the branch that comes from the stump of Jesse. And as we'll see in our final point, he is the one who will also rid you of everything that keeps you from the purity you can have in him. So Christ also prepares us and makes us pure. So in verses 10 through 15, in this second section of Micah, there's three sections of Micah, and this, these verses end this second section of Micah, which has been extremely hopeful for God's people. And it's good that it's been extremely hopeful because in chapters 6 and 7, they're about to enter back into the judgment that is to come upon the nation again. But these verses are pointing God's faithful remnant forward. To Christ, who would be their peace, who will be their security, and now who will be also their purity. Now, although these verses are an odd presentation in how Jesus would do this, um, we, we see that again in, in cha- from chapter 4, verse 1, we see that Micah begins to talk about this, this day that is coming. Well, he does it again here in chapter 5, verse 10, and tells us, In that day, declares the Lord. In that day, which he means in that day that Christ comes on the earth, that Christmas day that Christ comes, particular things will happen. 
Now, we see this really simply uh, spelled out to us in the New Testament. Like, as soon as Christ enters into the world, as soon as he enters into his mother's womb, things begin to change. He's not even birthed yet. And people's lives are being changed. And Luke 1 tells us all about this. His own mother receives the Holy Spirit. And then John the Baptist, who is to prepare the way for Jesus, in his mother's womb... When he hears the, the, the voice of the mother of Jesus, Mary leaps for joy in her womb. Leaps for joy in her womb. And then through that witness of her son in her womb, uh, Elizabeth receives the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth believes in who Jesus is already before he's even born. Mary communicates it this way in her song, The Magnificat, also in Luke 1. This is just part of it. She says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Meaning, the coming of Jesus is intended. It's intended to turn things upside down. Now, let me read for you how Micah describes that in chapter, in, in chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. Let me just read those again for us. I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So what we have here is God in Christ protecting his purified kingdom. So all of the examples that Micah uses here, horses and chariots and cities and and strongholds and these wooden images that they have created and built up to worship are, are all examples of idolatry. God in Christ will rid his people of all of their idolatry. He will purify them. Because you cannot walk closely with Jesus and idols at the same time. Just in case you were wondering. Proverbs 25.4 describes it like this. Take away the dross, which is the impurities uh, that, that you find when you start to, to, uh, to heat up silver or gold. Take away the dross from the silver... And the silversmith now has a vessel for use when those impurities are removed. And then Paul, talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful, To the master of the house, ready for every good work. In light of those two verses, or three verses, ask yourself this question. What in my life, if I were to lose it, would take me to the end of my self? 
what in my life, if I were to lose it today or this week, would take me to the end of myself? And there, more than likely, you will find your idol. You will find that thing or that person that you have begun to worship. Or at least something you're tempted to worship. Now, I'm not trying to scare you at all. I'm not trying to say that God is going to come and and take that thing or that person away from you today. But he might. He might. And if that means if that means making you completely and totally dependent upon him, he might have to do that. We see here in the text that that's exactly what God is doing to his people. He is removing their objects of trust. And he's leaving them with no other alternative but to trust in him alone. And as we've noted before, these reforms uh, that are put in place uh, put King Hezekiah, the current reigning king of Israel, toward, on the path toward true repentance and true faith in the God of Israel. And that's recorded for us in 2 Kings 18. And this is what it says. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that David his father had done, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So that there was none like him among all the things of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Because sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes you have to have the enemy barking at your door in order for repentance and true faith to come. And maybe that's where you are right now. So I would ask you to do the exact same thing King Hezekiah did, is repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And maybe that's the first time you're doing that or the 100th time you're doing that. Doesn't matter. God is calling you to do that today. And he does that to draw us further up and further into our relationship with him. I told some people about a, uh, an interview I, re- I, I listened to this week. It's a recent interview, too. I think it's in the past couple of weeks with Tim Keller, who has recently been – well, I should say he's been – recently, yeah, in the past six months, seven months, he's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And so a lot of you know medical folks. You know pancreatic cancer essentially is a death sentence. There's really no coming back from that. And he's fully aware of that, fully aware of it. But one of the things that that struck me as he's speaking very uh, bluntly about his cancer and what it's it's going to to do to him was he said that his and his wife Kathy's greatest fear after this deadly diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, that their greatest fear is if they get a positive diagnosis about his cancer for some reason, they might say, hey, you're going to live a little bit longer than we thought or miraculously you've been healed their greatest fear is that they get a positive diagnosis for his cancer and that they go back spiritually to where they were before his diagnosis 
which just blew me away. What he was saying is that this cancer, with its deadly outlook, had drawn him and his wife further up and further into their relationship with Jesus. And they don't want to go back to what they were once before. That's Tim Keller talking. I mean, I would have been just as happy with Tim Keller before his cancer as he is now. But he's saying he's gone further up and further in after this deadly diagnosis. And I think it's really important as we've considered what God is doing in Israel's life during Micah's ministry. They're walking through their own deadly diagnosis. The enemy is still at their gate. The enemy is still throwing his threats at them. And hope is hundreds of years away. But Micah is calling them to trust in their God now. He will bring deliverance. Because he is drawing them further up and further into their relationship with Christ. And he's doing this to show them and us that true joy truly does come from weakness. Amen. Let me pray for us.